0: Yo fam, if you've been listening a while, you know that I put out all kind of different uh, episodes, long form interviews, behind the music, journal entries, thoughts about uh, what's going on in current events and current topics. And I'm wondering what you like most. In other words, would you like to hear more interviews? Would you like to hear more behind the scenes? Would you like to hear more personal perspective. Let me know what you think. You can drop me a DM on Instagram. You can hit me up on our private Facebook group, the High Cost of Anonymity Facebook group, or drop me an email at Preston at kprestonmore.com. Let me know. I'd love to hear your feedback. Or if you have my phone number, drop your boy a text. i your boy, I love you. Yo fam, what you're about to listen to is an interview I had with Miss Kim Bolton-Lamontagne and she was a high-performing corporate executive who was struggling with mental health and addiction and was just terrified to share what had been going on with her and I really enjoyed her story. She's got a really great perspective. She is a corporate coach, speaker, trainer, author. Has recently retired to Florida in an RV, which is pretty legit, I have to say. But I really just like her perspective. I also like the fact that she's relied pretty heavily on an organization called NAMI, which we don't hear about too much, which is a free support group for mental health-centric Challenges, in other words, it's very similar to AA or NA or other twelve-step organizations, but it's geared a little bit more towards mental health. And uh, they have a she's a a trainer for them. I'm just a really big advocate for what they do and what Kim is doing and what her perspective is. So uh, enjoy. Let me know what you think. Love you. Yo, Kim.
1: Hi, Preston. How are you today?
0: Hey, thanks for coming on. Hey, family. This is uh, Preston, and I'm here with a. Uh, friend Kim who we met on Facebook who has a really interesting story and I feel like we uh, we had a, like an hour-long conversation for the first time a week ago and we're already fast friends yeah it's you're you're like a buddy a long-lost buddy from it's Maine.
1: amazing how things happen and how people just come into your life right at the at the exact time that they're supposed to so yeah. I'm happy to be here today
0: yeah absolutely Kim why don't you uh why don't you introduce yourself uh tell us a little bit about what you do and we'll get rolling
1: Sure, sure. So my name is Kim Lummon. I currently live in Sarasota, Florida, and I recently retired, quote unquote, from corporate America. I was working a full-time job while balancing the work of my mental health advocacy um, as a second um, part-time or almost full-time job as well. So on April 1, I resigned from my corporate position and decided to become a full-time entrepreneur, and what I do is I teach and train leaders in the workplace how to create and sustain a mentally healthy workplace culture, and I weave in the tools and the knowledge that I've acquired along the way through my own personal recovery of alcohol use and mental illness and my personal example of living in silence in the workplace and being too afraid to ask for help.
0: You sound like you've said that before. Very good job. Nice and concise. I like that. You know, one of the things that I really uh, loved about our conversation is the whole premise of this podcast is to make counseling, therapy, uh, support groups like NIAP and, and AA and NA as common as buying a gym membership, hiring a personal trainer or going to a group fitness class and even the name the high cost of anonymity like not only the high cost to ourselves but community when people don't feel comfortable comfortable enough sharing their story and and there's a way to do that and there's a, a point in which one you know could and should do that but the thing i found so interesting about your story was you said to me, you were such a high performer, but you were sitting behind the keyboard, and maybe I'm uh, making words up, but suffering. You were suffering inside, but yet when you looked at the numbers, if you were to ask your your corporate counterparts on how is Kim doing, you were in the top percentages of of your role. Can you talk a little bit about, um, about that and how you were maybe struggling to to have a, the, corp, put the corporate America face on, but yet going home at night, really struggling with your mental health and, and addiction um, issues?
1: Sure, absolutely. And I think um, my story is not unique, but I think what is unique is that I have um, embraced my story and I have embraced my recovery and I am brave and vulnerable enough to, to bring it forward. But you are correct. I was a very high performing individual in the corporate space um, and I was making my numbers. I was developing partnerships, um, you know, creating and maintaining great relationships with internal and external, um, counterparts and, and colleagues and just really doing trailblazing work and, and look like I had no fear in my eyes whatsoever. But behind that, behind my high performance, behind my smiles and my, um, bubbly personality and behind those emails and zoom calls was a person who was absolutely struggling with the fact that she needed to drink every single day not during the day um it was but it was a nightly occurrence it was five o'clock and i would start to drink my wine and i would have you know four five six seven glasses and doing it in the comfort of my own home, not hurting anyone, but waking up the next day, feeling like, wow, I did it again. Mm. But then, you know, putting the slight hangover aside and putting on that mask and going out and performing again. I just did that on a daily basis. And that really filled me with so much shame, um, which led to depression and anxiety and the persistent suicidal thoughts, because I felt like everyone knew me, but no one knew the real me Mm -mm. because I was too afraid to say what was really going on because I was afraid of being seen as weak, incompetent, and I may lose my seat at the table because I could be viewed in a completely different way. So I stayed silent.
0: Mm. What about, so There's a couple things there's there's and I've heard this in a couple different arenas is how similar high performers are to your list for lack of a better phrasing your down and out mental health drug addict alcoholics in other words. Everybody likes to point out the brown bag alcoholic who can't keep a job or can't keep a family or the heroin user, the person that's really struggling with mental health. But um, even from the kids uh, at the uh, what I do professionally is work for a mental health and addiction hospital. And a lot of people that deal with kids under 18, her uh, they're um, gifted and talented kids are experiencing a lot of the same mental and emotional issues that some of their uh, less privileged kids have. And I think it's natural that we focus on the people that are down and out, less privileged from, you know, shattered backgrounds, et cetera. But I think a lot of times high performers are overlooked and yet they are experiencing a lot of the same mental and emotional issues. So that is a um, that that's always an interesting dichotomy because a lot of people society would look at you as as a a performer a responsible productive member of society and say Kim has it has it all together and yet not only are you struggling but you're too embarrassed and ashamed to even let someone know uh, that you're struggling and I find that quite interesting.
1: Yeah, and and again I don't think that it's a very unique story if you think about it. Um, high performers, many of us have that type A personality. And within that high performing type A personality comes perfectionism and anything less than perfect, we beat ourselves up. Um, and so we really strive for that perfection. I'm a, I'm not that individual who um, was, you know, always after the numbers and always needed to be at the top or whatever. I just, it just came naturally to me to just whatever I did, I needed to do it to the best of my ability. And I think that, um, even though I was receiving director's choice awards and, um, awards for coming up with unique and out of the box ideas, it still just wasn't good enough for me. So, um, and then conversely, one of the things I would invite you and in the, the audience to also, um, consider as well is, um, whether I'm a high performer or I'm someone who is down and out and addicted, well, her suffering with a, a substance use, I am a person first, and I'm not my disease. So I have actually personally removed the words alcoholic, druggy, addict, all of those from my language because I found that when I associated, when I called myself an alcoholic, I felt like that was a dirty word. Mm. Um, And now if someone says, oh, you're an alcoholic, I say, well, you know what, I, I am. However, I invite you to (laughs) say, oh, you're a person, you're a person who's living with alcohol use disorder. And it totally changes the way we look at someone. Um, Mm -hmm. And especially in the workplace, many of us, you know, we tend to just look at someone who's having a a psychological problem, or, or living with mental illness is crazy, or nutso, or psycho, those are all words that, you know, they were socially accepted before, but to have them change and be um, more person-centered, more person-focused of, look at that other, that colleague of mine, you know, he's living with some really deep issues right now, but he's a person first, right. and for me, that's changed a lot.
0: Yeah, that's in I'm glad you brought that up I mean that's an interesting concept because as I'm having more and more of these conversations you are I am noticing a big shift in the uh in the language and I also I mean I understand it uh, I think a lot of the people that are coming up with the language are are uh healthcare centric and I respect that i I've been sober at the, I guess September will be 19 years so back in the back in the day, day there was none of this. Like I was an alcoholic in recovery. I was a drug addict in recovery and there was no, right. there wasn't substance use disorder, or alcohol use disorder. And I think that um, under the umbrella in which I, 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 or the flag in which I wave, which is find your community and get, you know, find what works and get there. I think that there's a lot of people that, um, yeah, like you said, like it's, it can be yeah. almost like, Yeah, just pointing out that you're human first and using language that is that is encouraging and not discouraging, that is positive and not negative. And I think on the other on the flip side, I remember distinctly my wife and I joke about this. The first time I ever went to meet her mother in France, we were going to be there for uh, for three weeks. And at this point, I had probably seven years clean. And I was very comfortable and confident in, in, in who I was. And I was an addict and blah, 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 blah. And they, we were trapped in the car for like two hours. And they went on to tell me about why do I degrade myself? And why do you hang out with those people? And why do you call yourself that? And I said, well, I'm not, I don't have a problem with it. You have a problem with it. So there's this, going back to this stigma, there is a stigma when someone hears addict, alcoholic, even down to substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, there is a edge and a stigma that comes along with it. And I think that's why it's so important for me to hear and and for the listeners to hear from people like you is it's up to us to teach people that those aren't bad words. And not only that, you know, you may even want people that are in recovery working for you because of the path that they have taken and stay on to remain on the path. And so I'm glad you brought that up because I think that there's people out there that, that would, um, yeah, would just really identify with the way that you say that. And I think it's important. Mm -hmm. What, um, let me ask you this, uh, going back to, uh, when I was thinking about high performers and perfectionism, have you done any work at all? Like looking back into your childhood or where those ideas of, you know, being perfect or the drive there's a maybe it's not a hypothesis but this idea that all of us from a very young age make decisions on how we're going to deal with life and some Mm -hmm. people say in an effort because I don't think that I'm good enough uh, that I'm going to go the other way and I'm just not going to try at anything So you have no expectations. And that's the way I'm going to handle my feelings and my emotions and my self-worth. And some people go the other way. They say, I'm going to be a high performer and I'm going to prove my worth that way. Do you remember anything as a child of like, you know, where that, you know, drive for for, um, you know, perfection or to be an achiever came from any any anything ring a bell there?
1: Well, I would say, looking back at my childhood, I would say that my father was a very hardworking individual. He was a business owner uh, from day one and just got up and went to work seven days a week and put food on the table and provided for us. And we had a great upbringing. And he was just a great example for me of how to commit to uh, to your work
0: mm. and bring
1: your best self to work and treat people with respect and dignity and So I would say that I really got my, my perfectionism from my dad. I know I got, yeah, I did get my perfectionism from my dad. I mean, when it comes to, um, they, one of my nicknames is Eagle Eye because I can spot something from a mile away if it's crooked. And I, and I know (laughs) I got that. (laughs) I know I got that from my dad. Um, so yeah, but you know what? I never thought that there was anything wrong with it and there's nothing wrong with being a perfectionist. It's okay. But, just make sure it's not interfering with your own mental well-being. Hmm. There's a line. There's a fine line that we have to kind of straddle over to make sure that we're meeting our own internal and personal requirements, but not at our the expense of our own mental health.
0: Yeah, you know that and, and I think that that is, you know, that takes some for some a lifetime to really figure out that. Mm-hmm. You know, when does something that is heralded as a as a thing to have and a person to be like, when do you when do you realize that that thing that you thought was just part of your personality or part of you or who you were, when do you realize that that's like maybe something that you you felt As if, and I'm using my words that I I never felt worthy enough, therefore, I needed to show you in some way that I was worthy. But for so long, I thought that was confidence, hard work, uh, being a responsible, productive member of society, and only to realize that it was like a survival mechanism that was trying to make me feel whole. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's you know, because hard work seven days a week, you know success, uh, hit numbers. I mean, that's very American, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a heralded characteristic to have. It, uh, it
1: absolutely is. And, and a couple of things to kind of follow up to that is, you know, if you are a perfectionism, a, a perfectionist, um, and you are worried about your, your mental health, or even if you're not a perfectionist, I invite you to do two things. Um, uh, number one, On a regular basis, check in with yourself, check in with your friends and ask, how am I doing? How are you doing? But then don't stop it there. Put your emotions on a scale of one to 10 and rate your emotions. Where are you at, at any given point during the day? And if you're anything less than an eight, in my opinion, could be seven, but if you're anything less than an eight, or even if you're at a nine, whatever, I invite you to ask yourself, what is preventing me? What is the gap that's preventing me from going from a four on the scale up to an eight? right? Bring those things forward. And if they're thoughts, question them, ask yourself, are these thoughts that I'm thinking and believing really true? And if they are, how are they making me feel? And, you know, what are they doing to me uh, physically, mentally, emotionally? And if they're not really true, dismiss them, let them go. And I know it sounds like a, it sounds very easy the way I describe it. It's not. It took me a while to to really latch onto this concept. And it's a, a concept that I learned from Byron Katie, who does the process called The Work. It's a four-step process where you ask yourself, about a stressful thought, a specific situation, is what I'm thinking and believing really true? or am I just making up scenarios in my mind based upon the knowledge that I have? So is it really true? Number two, are you absolutely certain that what you're thinking and believing is really true? Number three, um, how do you feel, who do you stressful thought? And then the fourth one is who would you be without that stressful thought? And nine times out of 10, you'd be a whole different person, relaxed and free. So then it brings you back to question number one. Is that not really true? Mm. If it's not, then just let it go. You know, we have to understand what's within our control. The past is not in our control. The future is not in our control. The only thing that is in control is, is present. And we invite individuals to ask themselves, what does success look like? And make sure that every area of your life is addressed. So it's not, you know, I want to be successful and make the money. Well, what about successful relationships? Um, What about successful family relationships um, with your loved one? Um, What does that look like? And are you also incorporating self-care into that successful life as well? Because going back to the high performers, we have the tendency to go, 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 go. And just think success is the next um, positive outcome, the next meeting, um, the next podcast, the next whatever. but are you really taking time to really have a successful and a balanced life as well, which is me mm.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up byron katie. i've I've talked about her quite a bit and and I feel like that's helped me so much in that you know, that question three, where it says, when I believe that thought, how do I feel and how do I act? You know, i.e. I'm irritable. I'm restless. I'm short. I am angry. I am, uh, you know, thinking in terms of of, uh, me parenting or being with uh, around my wife and communicating is I am not I do not act in a way that I am happy and proud of. And usually it's because I'm, I'm believing or I'm scared of some Mm -hmm. bull crap that I've made up. And if I did, and if I wasn't scared and if I wasn't believing in whatever the thing that was causing me the angst, I would actually be calm, relaxed and, and interacting with my family in a way that I was proud of, that was you know, it wouldn't bother me that my son left his toys out that I just stood on, or it wouldn't bother me that my wife was asking for help. It's only because I'm preoccupied with this this fear, this shame, this guilt. And so what Byron Katie's work did in those questions is the minute I'm able to set aside when I believe that thought, how am I acting and feeling? And it's a way that I don't want to be. And if I didn't believe that thought, how would I be acting and feeling? It would be a a way that I want to be. And then I go, well, why don't you just do that? And it almost takes, it just, it's like taking the air out of a balloon. It takes all the power out of that fear, that shame, that guilt. And I also, it draws a really distinct line, Kim, in that I actually have a choice once I identify that 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 I'm believing something that isn't true, or that something outside of whatever the current situation is causing me this angst. Once I'm able to identify that, I now can pick. But when I don't, when I'm buying into the thought, when I'm acting in the, I, I'm I'm thinking it's the toy. I'm thinking it's my wife. I'm thinking it's the situation, and I'm just, I'm in the chaos, and I'm you know doing things that are even more shame and guilt inducing. And so I really, I really like that. Um, I really like that work and those questions and the ability to, to determine what is it that's really bothering me and, and is it right. even true?
1: Exactly. And it's imperative that we question our thoughts because my gosh, before I found Byron Katie's work, I, um, I used to live like my entire life, 99% of my day, I was in the fight or flight mode worried about what if, and what's going to happen, all these crazy scenarios that I was just latched onto. And now I'm about 99% free spirited and just let things happen the way they are. And then maybe 1% fight or flight. I mean, I do get sometimes something r- riles me up and then I, I stop and think, I'm like, okay, I don't like this feeling. Let me process it. And it's a beautiful way to live. It really is.
0: Ken, why don't you tell me a little bit about, um, uh, a little bit about your story, how how it was growing up, um, and what you were like, um, you know, going up, up and through school to work to, to your alcoholism ramping up. And then, um, maybe what happened, just kind of going, going a bit through your story and, and telling us, uh. A bit of your background in history and how you ended up getting sure. sober and, and the advocacy. Sure, work I'd be did. happy
1: to. So I was raised in a blue collar family. Um, my parents were married for oh, I think probably forty five years until my mom passed away in nineteen ninety nine. Um, one brother, one sister, very well adjusted family. And my dad, as I said, got up and went to work every day. I did well in school. I pretty much you know, did what I was supposed to at home. Um,
0: was there any, any background, whether it's your parents, grandparents, great grandparents with mental health, illness, alcoholism, you know, strict military religious background or high, you know, like high uh, expectations that, that you yeah, can think of. That my
1: grandmother had very high expectations and she had, she had never had a, a drop of alcohol in her life. So, she never had the issue. But looking back at it, I definitely see a pattern um, in my family with, uh, I believe my mom had an issue and I, uh, there were some others in the family as well that had an issue with drinking. Um, I think depression has run throughout the family as well on the female side, which is interesting, not on the male yeah. side. But I, I can recall when I was in first, second, third grade, my dad used to come home From work and every day at the count of five, my mom would always make a scotch and water with a twist of lemon and I would carry it from the kitchen through the dining room into the sunroom and give it to my dad. And I would always have a couple of sips along the way and that was, it was fine. (laughs) You know, no big deal. But I would say that when I was in high school, I started to realize that I liked alcohol and it was when i really got into college that it was every weekend i was drinking um, every weekend i was partying i wasn't at that point drinking every night but i was partying very hard every weekend and when i came home Mm. on my first spring break that's when i realized that i had the craving like oh my gosh i'm living at home right now and i'm craving the beer that's in the refrigerator and i was sneaking Mm. them um mm. then I remember distinctly being in a psychology class. I remember the room, I remember the chair I was sitting in and I took a uh a test, a self-assessment about alcohol use, right?
0: <laughs> right.
1: And I checked uh, in my mind, I was checking off yes to all the questions, but of course uh, I checked no. off no to all the questions and I said, "Oh my gosh, Kim, you have a problem." Um
0: that that's a, That's one of the tricks when you they give you the twenty five questions and then they and then they tell you at the end if you said yes to, uh, uh more than three three or more of these you might have an issue. And I'm going, uh, I just said yes to twenty two right. of them. This is uh, exactly. Not good. Or what you know what it was? It was actually, this doesn't make sense because this checklist is telling me I have an issue, but based on my own life experience and what I think is an issue. I don't have an issue and they don't Mm -hmm. match up. I do. You know what I'm saying? Like there was this, because I had so many friends and family members that I looked at as responsible, productive members of society. They were business owners. They were moms. They were dads. They were this and that, and they were heavy drinkers and all of them would have checked Yes to all these. And I don't, I don't understand that how they can be good people and functioning. And yet this checklist is saying, I got an issue Or like in college, Every, you know, maybe everybody is kind of drinking like this, but this is saying that I got an issue. There has to been some sort of dichotomy in in, in belief yeah, systems. Yeah, and the I thing guess. is,
1: is it can happen to any one of us. It can be the person who's CEO of a company, or it could be someone who is living on the streets. It really, mental illness and addiction, it really, it does not discriminate. And that's where I think there's a lot more information and education and resources available out there that are really lessening the stigma. But there is still a very uh, large stigma in terms of what you have to look like and who you need to be in order to be labeled as a quote unquote alcoholic or a drug addict. And if that's all you are, then your life is worthless. Well, that's not true. It's a person. It's a person who inside is suffering a great deal and would probably love to not be doing what they're doing. But they don't have the strength or the willpower, or they haven't recognized the power within them that they have to be able to beat the disease. And until they find that power, it's an uphill uh, struggle. And, you know, for me, again, I knew when I was in high school, I absolutely knew when I was in college, I got married at a young age at 20 years old, I was, uh, had my daughter at 21 And after I had my daughter, I think it was from that day on, I was drinking wine every day and still showing up and being a great mom and doing all the right things, going back to college, earning my degree, going to work, uh, being the high performer. But there were a few things that happened to me along the way that really stuck out to me. One of them is being at a sales training in Baltimore, Maryland, and I had just won a director's choice award at a sales summit. So I went out to celebrate with my team, my coworkers. And I texted my husband at the time and I told him that I was going out and I would text him when I got back and by the time I got back, I don't remember getting back to my room, so I never texted him and mm. I woke up the next day to 2530 text messages and phone calls from him from my coworkers. Uh, I called him first thing in the morning, got into an immediate argument. He thought I was dead on the side of the road. Uh, come to find mm. out he went on my company website and found contact information from my boss and my coworkers, oh reached my out gosh. to them. So that turned into a major thing and I was late for my meeting, but I made it. And when I got to that meeting the next morning, Uh, feeling like crap, by the way. I was so hungover, and they served Mexican for lunch that day, which made me even sicker. Um,
0: Unless you're from Texas, that's perfect hangover food. That's what we actually crave. That's that's the last thing. A good juicy
1: hamburger is good hangover food for me. But when I got to that meeting, everyone was talking about the fire alarm that had happened the night before and how the entire hotel had evacuated. And I'm sitting there thinking... I don't remember a fire alarm. I didn't hear the fire alarm. I didn't evacuate. I I stayed in my room. I was the only person in the hotel who did not evacuate. And it was because I was passed out in my room. So wow. that was one instance. And there were several more in between. Again, I never hurt anyone. I never drove impaired. I never did anything bad. The person who I beat up the most was myself. Well, the, the, the Mm. straw that broke the camel's back was in 2009, July 4th. We had had a, a party at my house in my driveway. We had a, a bonfire going. Um, I woke up the next day hungover and I asked my husband, why do I still have all my clothes on from the night before and what happened? And I also asked him, why do I have black marks all over my pants? And he looked at me and he said, Kim, you were so drunk last night that you tripped and almost fell into the fire pit in the driveway. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really knew. I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I, I really need to do something here. And that was July 4th or July 5th. And then on July 16th I of 2009, I made the call that changed my life. And I went in and I saw a doctor or a nurse practitioner. I called and got an, a at four forty five and got an appointment at five fifteen, which is unheard of. But the universe mm. knew that that was mm. my time, and I met the most kind, judgmental, non judgmental, compassionate, open hearted nurse practitioner one could have ever asked for. And when I told him why I was there, he just looked me straight in the eye and said, "Kim, I'm gonna we're gonna do this, and we're gonna do this together." And he meant it, and he supported me throughout my mm. recovery.
0: Wow. What did he recommend to you?
1: A bunch of things. Um, so for me, and I know recovery for everyone looks a little bit different, but I had the depression. I had the alcohol use. So he said, let's treat one over the other first and then, we can, you know, get mm. you on the right path. So it was a mixture of antidepressants. And then for a short time, I was on some medication to help me with the alcohol withdrawal. And I engaged in counseling. I engaged in AA and i committed myself to going to see this nurse practitioner regularly checking in with him letting him know if i'm okay if i need help um i told Mm. some friends and family to let them know that to hold me accountable basically and to let them know this is what i'm going through and if i change if my social circles change if if i need some extra support this is what's going to happen. And it was rough. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. The first year, man, you might be able to attest to this, but I wanted no part whatsoever in any type of nutrition other than if it was in the form of sugar. So I ate sugar.
0: Sugar. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say sugar. Price I ate sugar for it.
1: an entire year, Preston. The only thing I survived on, and I mean this morning, noon, and night, is iced coffee during the day, no food and then yeah. a bowl of Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream at night with chocolate sauce, strawberries <laughs> and peanut butter. That's it. Uh,
0: yeah. Oh man, that's uh yeah, I mine wasn't um maybe as obvious as that, but I distinctly sugar is a I, I definitely identify in OA uh with things with okay. the obsession, etc., but for so long of my uh, in my life is um I basically said I've quit the drugs and alcohol. I am entitled to as much sugar and caffeine as I can possibly get yes. my hands on. And uh, it, it, is, it, is, it is wreaked havoc in my life, I have mm-hmm. to admit.
1: Yeah, I agree. And it, it was amazing. And, you know, through that, I ended up losing 20 pounds. I was underweight. I almost got hospitalized because I was on the very, the lowest tip of my weight scale that my doctor would let me go on. Um, he's like, if you lose any more weight, Kim, you're going in the hospital. And so I had to force myself to eat, but it was awful. It was awful. I just wanted sugar.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, it's interesting. So what did you, um, so when he, and I think this is so important to point out is when it comes to recovery, whether it's mental health or addiction, a lot of times the prescription is different. And that's one of the That's one of the really amazing things is, look, we're going to treat the whole person and we're going to treat you as an individual. But one of the downsides is um, it's very hard to get things covered or it's very hard to know the the, you know, how much of each thing do you prescribe? And I'm talking about counseling, AA, nurse practitioner, maybe medication, et cetera. Um, and so what did, what did your nurse practitioner say? He said, look, you're going to do a counselor once a week. You need to make some AA meetings. You're going to take some, some medication. How, like how often were you doing things for your mental health and addiction on a, on a weekly Mm -hmm. basis uh, in the, in the beginning? In the very
1: beginning um, it was absolutely, it was counseling once a week. That was a mandatory um, and I went to AA meetings once or twice a week. I found, or sometimes I went three times a week, but there was a women's meeting I went to every Friday night. And then the mixed meeting that I went to every Saturday morning. Um, And then in terms of the medication, he started me on one medication for a couple of weeks. Let me kind of get my legs back and get my emotions in, in check. And then he started me on the second medication and I checked in with him personally on a monthly basis and I mm. just made it a point again, I was very open with my family. So I would make sure that um, I practiced that self-care and would go out for walks and would do things that were, that were good for my mind and my soul that would really get me off of the, get my mind off of things as well. I, I brought my husband to a couple meetings that didn't work out also great, but <laughs> you know, he, he supported me going and. I found some local groups and then some other ones that I would travel to. But I would say that, um, you know, that support network, I got a sponsor and exchanged phone numbers and with many of the women in AA and got together with them on a regular basis and just really gravitated towards those people who had more experience and were further along in the marathon that I was just beginning.
0: Yeah. What so one of the things I talk quite a bit about is um, one of my arguments is people that have that are in recovery from, in other words, they were one way, they went through something, they found tools um, on on how to change, and they continue to use those tools, uh, whether it's for mental health or addiction. I argue that that is a superpower. In other words, that is a that is a superpower that you are sitting on for the community that the community should know about, um, because almost everybody we know knows someone struggling with mental health and addiction. However, a lot of us are taught, whether we're taught and it's insisted on, we keep that quiet, or it's our own shame, guilt, and embarrassment that keeps us from saying it. Um, oftentimes, we don't tell anybody until like they find out sometimes by mistake. But what was that like for you going from, I guess, and here's the other thing is at what point does that, does that uh, abstinence and recovery go from being new and maybe you're on shaky ground to being on like firm spiritual ground or firm ground where you feel comfortable in your recovery and now you can be an asset to your community and talk to people about that. What was that transition for you? I know that you said you kind of kept it quiet. You told a couple Uh, immediate friends and family for accountability. But how long did it take before you got comfortable being open with people? That's a really great
1: question. And it took me a long time. So again, I've been sober since 2009. And it wasn't until 2016, that I actually had a conversation Mm -hmm. with my boss that was life changing. Uh, She had recognized that although I was her top performer, that something was just a little bit off and I was a remote employee. So I would talk to her via phone or Skype or, but I didn't see her a lot, but she made it a point to travel up from New Jersey up to Boston and meet with me for the day. And I was open and honest with her about everything. And she was blown away. She's like, Kim, how have you been able to operate at those levels with all of the stuff that is going on behind the scenes? And, you know, we had a really great heart to heart and we cried and we really, just supported one another. And she told me that day Memorial day weekend is coming up. I want you to go away and I want you to take extra time around that weekend and invest in you. And that's when I found the work of Byron Katie. Once Mm. I started doing the work of Byron Katie, I then started doing, um, I was in the process of working on my master's program and I had started working with the national Alliance on mental illness on in Massachusetts. They had a program called CEOs against stigma and.
0: And national, national Alliance on mental illness. That's a a NAMI is the, uh, what a lot of people call it. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. N-A-M-I for the acronym.
1: And so I started to look at the NAMI in New Hampshire where I was living. And I noticed that they had this program called in our own voice. And I thought, Oh, I'm going to sign up for that. It was a weekend program, completely free to go to. And throughout those that weekend, I was trained how to appropriately share my story using the NAMI format of what happened, what helped, and then what's next. And I started mm-hmm. stepping out on stages and going into companies or going to places, organizations that wanted to have someone share their lived experience. And I would go out on behalf of NAMI and share my story and speak to individuals. And I noticed the tremendous amount of connection that I had with the audience. And I can handpick all the people that are in that audience that it's obvious that I'm connecting with because my story is just like theirs. It resonates with them. And right after every presentation people were coming up to me thanking me for being so raw and open and vulnerable and for sharing and for stepping forward and I it was that point that I really realized okay I need to do more work about this and really bring it forward mm-hmm. but I still wasn't open and honest with everyone until 2017 when my vice president at the time had invited me to do a presentation at our um, national sales summit for the company I worked for back in Baltimore again. And she said, I recognize all the work that you're doing in the mental health space on social media. I'd like you to bring this work forward. And so I did, and I did a 45 minute presentation in a room full of about 25 to 30 coworkers, um, colleagues mm. in sales, business development, marketing, HR, human race, um, uh, all sorts of colleagues in that room. And I went through the statistics of mental health in the workplace, presenteeism. And then I shared my story and not a single person got up or moved or went to the bathroom. They were all really waiting for my next word because the person who I was describing, the Kim LaMontagne I was describing up there was a complete and utter different person from the Kim LaMontagne that they know in the workplace who is a high performer director's choice Mm -hmm. and eight of my own co-workers came up to me after I shared my story and said that they suffer too and that's when I was like okay wow I need to fully share my story fully share it on LinkedIn fully share it on social media fully be vulnerable every time I go out and and teach uh, organizational leaders how to build that work workplace culture. So again, sober in 2009, fully sharing my story, I would say fully in 2017. So that's took me a while.
0: You know that, well, and it does. And I think that it's important that people, however they get to it, that they get to it because there's two things I want to point out. Number one, you were speaking to, did you say 25 to 30 people? Of my own
1: co-workers, yes.
0: Yeah. Was the room, was it more? Cause you said, would that be eight yes. out of 30 yes. or that? Wow. Yes. That's a, I'm not a, I'm not a quick math, but that's a freaking large Yeah. Percentage. And I'll tell
1: you another time. I was a featured presenter at a conference in Houston, Texas. Uh, and there was about 150 attendees there. And they were all senior vice presidents of HR of major healthcare systems in the Houston area and beyond. And I gave my presentation yeah. I shared my story, went through the statistics, 13 people out of the 150, 13 people over the course of that two-day conference approached me. Now, these are senior level executives who are probably categorized as high performers. And they told me that I spoke their story loud and clear that thank you for sharing and you give me permission to say I'm not okay.
0: Yeah, that's so good. It's so good because... There's two things that happen that most of the time, and this is across the board in my experience, that 99% of the things I worry about Kim never happen. And they, meaning, I go through the well, if they find out, what are they going to think of me? What if I lose business? What if they, you know, think I'm a loose cannon all of a sudden and I get demoted? Like the amount of what ifs that go through and the people and, I haven't gotten people on here that have shared with me negative consequences like down and out negative consequences, which I know I'm sure there's people out there that have them. But almost every single person without without fail, say the opposite happened. They created more connection. They created more deeper uh, relationships. They actually got more opportunities. They attracted more uh, clients or uh, people to to work with and collaborate on. And it's usually the exact opposite of the thing that they fear the most, which is like ridicule, demotion and loss of uh, face, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or social credibility. It sounds like it was the same for you as well. It
1: was. But, you know, you you are right that there are those rare cases. I was just contacted by a nurse the other day who said that she had shared openly and she um, received less than stellar treatment and was given uh, poor, uh, poor assignments and her treatment changed drastically once she had said that. But for the majority of people, the majority, it is definitely a more positive experience. And to me, if, you know, I look at it this way. I had a doctor once who he was my GI, my gastrointestinal doctor took care of me for years. I never was honest with him about my drinking. And, um, two years into my sobriety, I had had an appointment with him and I was, you know, I thought this nurse practitioner, my general practitioner, everyone in that doctor's office, they see me as being brave and strong. So I assumed that this GI doctor would be the same way. And I understand where he came from because he treated me for a long time and I was on some medication that I should not have been drinking on. But, you know, I was sick back then. So I revealed to him that I'm really proud, Dr. XYZ. I am two years in recovery. And he, you know, put the, connected the dots and said, so you've been drinking during our entire professional relationship. And (laughs) you've been doing this. I'm like, Yes, I've been doing everything else that you've told me, but that's just the one thing. And he was infuriated with me to the point where he had sweat marks coming through his button-up shirt. I could see them, and it wasn't just under his arms. It was He was sweating. He was so mad at me, and I understand where he was coming from. But I also understand that he was treating the sick me before. Now I am the healthy me. But... At the end of that appointment, I said, thank you for everything you've done for me. I will no longer be coming back here to see you because I do not want to feel like I'm going to be judged every time I walk through that door. So I, yeah. I kind of liken that to an employer. And that's, it's different because an employer is your livelihood. That's your source of income. That's your source of fulfillment. That's your source of, you know, what you do. That's part of who you are. But to me, if I were to personally come out to an employer and they saw my story as something negative, that would not energetically feel good to me. And I would feel that the only recourse that I would have would be to say, you know what, thank you for showing your true colors and letting me know that this is not the right workplace environment for me, because I need to work for an employer who looks at the whole me and not just the physical part of me, because my mental health is part of it, too. And then I would follow up by saying I am damn proud of all the progress that I've made and I wish you the best. That's yeah. kind of how I feel now. And I mean that in the most kind and loving way. Um, that's just how I feel. And that's what happens when you, you finally let go of the shame and the guilt and you realize that, you know, what, that person who was out of work on disability because she had a stroke, um, She's being welcomed back with open arms. Well, if I was out on disability because I had a mental breakdown, I should be given the same accommodations. And if you're not willing to do that as an employer, again, it's not the right place for me, but everyone's different.
0: Yeah. And I think that there's something to point out to Kim is we can't, by we, I can't go around and painting these pictures and real broad brushes because I also think it's important to learn How you share it, when you share it, how how uh, one one person that I talked to said you have to be solid enough in your recovery that if things don't go well, that it's not going to spin you out or break you down or cause you to to, to, you know, have some negative um, things happen. Like, you know, there's a real possibility that someone could lose their job. or And I think everything is on a case-by-case basis, and that's why it's important for people to use support groups and people that have tread the the path before you because you can check in with them and you can get to know them and then they can give you better direction because they know you and they know your situation. I'm not going to sit here and say that all people should say, just blurt out what they got going on. But I do argue that in the vast majority of cases, um, you're a lot of people are perpetuating the stigma that they can't stand. And all they need to do is to say, hey, by the way, I've got experience in mental health and addiction. If you know someone that needs help, let me know. Mm -hmm. I'm a resource for you. And it's something as simple as that. We don't have to go into, our extensive background or, or what medications we're on or, you know, whatever. And I think that's a learned skill. And I think that people shouldn't necessarily have to come up with it on their own. I think it's important to ask for help from people that have walked before them, not for normies that say, don't say anything because they might view you differently. Now keep it under your hat because they're judge They're go, they're giving you that advice off their own judgment. Absolutely. You know? And I think the same thing about that doctor, like, that doctor probably takes it takes his, his his uh practice super seriously and to fathom that someone wouldn't be totally honest with him. Uh you know, not maybe not him not seeing them as someone that's sick. And here he goes is like I've been thinking that I'm helping this person and she's been lying to me. That means what I've been telling her is incorrect. And now I look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. Like now I look like I've been a disservice and what I, no wonder what I've been doing is not working because she's been lying. Like how, right. how gray and murky that could get. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad person, but you can only imagine if he doesn't understand the disease of addiction and he goes, Holy crap. No wonder everything I've been, no wonder I've been so, so confused. I could have killed this girl cause she wasn't honest." Right and he's getting so fired up about it. Like it's not just, it's just not a, a a, a black and white straight up issue. It's a thing that we have to learn how to do and, and through experience and through asking people for help. I think it's, I want to be very clear with the listeners that it's not just blurred out and everybody should just be accepting an open arm. Right. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think it's, I mean, look at you. It took you, what, 2009 to 17? I mean, that's eight years, seven, eight years, Yeah. you know, before you really, really felt comfortable.
1: And you know what? Think of it this way, though. And you never know. And it's about, you know, asking for help from the right people and and aligning yourself and locking arms with the right people as well. Remember what I described on July 16, 2009, I called at 445, got in at 515. It was with a nurse practitioner I had never seen before. And it was a man. And first of all, I said to the woman on the other end of the phone, you know, this is a very private issue I'm coming in for. I don't know this nurse practitioner. Do you have a female? I want to talk to a female. She said, Kim, he is a phenomenal nurse practitioner. Come in and see him. So I did. And I am so thankful that I saw someone who came to me at just the right time. He was put in my path for a reason and he was open and he was willing to accept me I had never met this man before in my life and he helped me tremendously. If I had gone to this GI doctor who I had a great relationship with for all those years and thought, well, maybe he can help me. Maybe I'll be honest with him now and maybe he can help me recover. What if I had been met with that type of a response? If I had come out to that particular doctor. So, you know, that nurse practitioner saved my life because he's like, Hey, you're a person. I see you and I'm going to help you. So it is important to know who is safe enough to talk to. Any medical provider, in my opinion, needs to understand that it is not the person's fault that they're sitting there in your, in your room and they're suffering or the, the individuals who are relapsing. We are not doing those things on purpose. We're just trying to do the next best, best thing that we know to do, how to survive. Um, but on the other hand as well, it's okay if you if you meet a practitioner, if you meet a counselor, um, if you meet someone along your path of recovery, and it doesn't feel right for you, it's okay to change providers. I'm not saying fire everyone you come in contact with, but just know that there's many providers out there, and it is so incredibly important to have a provider who is in your corner, who is cheering you on, who is your champion, and who is not just giving you the 10-minute visit just to check off the box. They truly want to know how you're doing.
0: Right. And I think it's also, this is uh, also to my point, that the reason it is important for our coworkers, our neighbors, our communities to know that we have, uh, that we're in recovery, we're a valuable resource because it's inevitable That someone in that community, someone in that workplace is going to have an issue, whether it's mental health or addiction, and I would much rather them say, hey, Preston, because they're rolling the dice when they're calling a phone number. They're rolling the dice. Do I go see someone I have a relationship with or do I go see someone that I don't have a relationship because I'm too scared? Maybe I'm more willing to be open with them. But if they I would much rather them come to me and say, hey, Preston, I'm thinking about do this. I might have an issue. And then now I get to educate them. Okay, here's first step. Step one. I have a provider that I think could be good for you. Hey, if they don't work out or you get the heebie jeebies from them or they tell you something that puts you off. Come back to me because I have another handful of providers. And, oh, by the way, here's a couple women that have walked the path before before us. Let's get them on the phone together and let me tell you all the possible pitfalls because I've been right. there. But if, if they don't know to come and ask for me, if their family doesn't know to reach out and say, hey, Preston, what should we do? They're rolling the dice and you had a good experience but very easily they could have had a bad experience exactly and that's why i think we that's why i say people that are in recovery with multiple years of sobriety that are foundational members of our communities and are working a program and have tools and solutions i feel like it's a disservice that more people don't know that you're a resource right. it just you know they should they should come to us we we should have an open door that they get to come to us first And we get to hold their hand, you know, and and help kind of help the family navigate so they don't feel so alone.
1: It's all about reaching back and helping those who are still stuck in the fire to say, you know what? I see you. I support you. I can give you every tool that I have in my toolkit. but You have to commit and do the work and I will help you. And, um, yeah. knowing that you have someone in your corner is so huge because you'll have great days and then you'll have days where it's just like, Oh my goodness. I mean, I'm 11 years sober once in a blue moon. I'll look at someone having a glass of white wine and I think, Oh boy, would I really like that? But
0: the, you know, the majority <laughs> of the
1: time I, I don't even crave it. And someone made a mistake with me. I was out the other day and, um, someone who I was with ordered a margarita And I said, good margarita. He's like, here, try it. And for a very, very split second, I was like, oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. And then, but I caught myself and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And like, it's perfectly fine. I said, I would love to try it. But I absolutely positively know 100% (laughs) that I cannot
0: do it. I think that, I mean, that is so uh, beneficial. I think with something that's come up, um, recently, and I don't know if it was on here, just, uh, uh, in outside conversations, but people are like, well, you've been sober for so long. Why do you keep going back? Uh, why do you keep going to those meetings? Why do you keep talking about it? Why do you keep sponsoring people? And it's the easiest way is to talk to someone that has a healthy lifestyle that watches what they eat and work out, or they have a, they have a religious or spiritual practice that they do on a regular do would we ask them why why are you still eating healthy like that's weird you've been doing it for 20 years why do you keep going back or why do you keep doing that religious practice and it's because it fills me up and i got to stay aware because if not my eating will get off my health will get off my I'll get farther away from my spiritual practice and then I'll be a person I don't really love to be. It's the exact same principle. And when the margarita presents itself, because I too have been in multiple situations where they go, Oh, try this. And for a split second, I'm like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Exactly. I can't try that. (laughs) It's like if you don't, if you don't have that in the forefront of your mind to remember if I that little drink might not be a big deal today, but a year, three years, five years from now, it could be a, it could be a disaster. If I don't remember that I start thinking I'm normal and I start thinking I can have a sip of that little margarita or it is no big deal because all I'm hanging around with is normies and I'm so far away from the desperation that got me to Mm -hmm. ask for help. Um, Tell me this. What do you think? Do you think that there's a different stigma With regards to mental health versus addiction, I know NAMI is a lot more focused on mental health. When you talked about the presentations that you've done, you, you know, you talk a little bit, if you're for NAMI, you're doing a little more for mental health. Um, do you think there's a different stigma for someone that is a, you know, substance use disorder or drug addict, alcoholic versus someone that struggles with anxiety and depression in the workplace?
1: Unfortunately, I have to say, yes, I do. Um, I also. just feel that I think that many people who don't fully understand a stigma, uh, excuse me, um, addiction and mental <laughs> health or mental illness, they feel that number one, you can just snap out of it and be happy. You can just calm down and not be so anxious. You can just do all those things. But when it comes to talking about someone who is a quote unquote addict, the, the thing that always comes up is it's your own choice stop making the wrong choice. It's your own fault. If you ingest that drug, it's your own fault. If you smoke, whatever you're smoking, it's just stop. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not your choice. If you're a diabetic and you have to take insulin, is that your, is that your own fault that, that that happened? And are you going to be shamed for that? No. I mean, it, it could,
0: so, sometimes it is their fault. Yes. However, they're still not shamed about no, it. No, they're not. There. And I
1: was, I was just about to correct myself. Sometimes it is their own fault. You're right. But, yeah, right. Um,
0: well, one, actually, one, to that point, one, I did hear a doctor on the Dopey podcast. And I wish I could remember her name, but she had said, and she She came from a place with the word alcoholic and drug addict like you did. She's talking about substance use and we have a disease. But if someone relapses on cancer, their cancer relapses and comes back, we don't blame them and say, oh, what did you do to make that cancer come back? We go, you know, we treat it as if it's a disease, which is the same concept, disease concept for mental health and addiction. If you do have a relapse, that's a pretty good argument for, you know. Uh, 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 you know, your, your, substance used to come back or your depression, suicidal thoughts to come back. It, it, it's a, they've, they run very similar paths. Do.
1: And I think that's a great example. You're absolutely right. That if someone does um, relapses and goes and has a um, um, about with cancer and they go into remission and it comes back again, it's not their fault. And they would probably get casseroles brought to them and they would have food 100 and you know mental illness and addiction it's the no casserole disease nobody shows up at your <laughs> yeah. front door and brings you a casserole after you've been let out of the behavior <laughs> health unit <laughs>
0: right. no one shows up right that, that you get you get out of the behavior unit or the or rehab and they go i hope they learn exactly. their lesson exactly they need absolutely. to figure their yeah. stuff and out. and how
1: fair is that? How wrong is that? That's just absolutely wrong. That person is just as sick and just as fragile and holding on to as much hope as they possibly can. The last thing that they want to, to, to be seen as is weak or um, not included and as a freak. Uh, it, it's That's where the normalization, the sharing the lived experience, <clears throat> bringing stories forward of Folks like yourself and myself who are high functioning and outwardly, you know, we appear like everything is fine, but we, but we weren't. We're fine now, but there's so many individuals out there. And I always say I was a chameleon in the workplace. I could blend in with any crowd. I could blend in with any conversation. You can take me to a a black tie event. You can take me to a barbecue, a corporate, whatever you want. I will blend in. And I will not tell anyone what's going on behind my mask. Now, when I go out, I'm blending in with all of my true qualities. (laughs) But there's a lot of people out there who are very good at being a chameleon. And those are the most dangerous individuals um, because they're living behind a mask and just not getting the help that they need. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, and I think the, 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 the overarching point there is for more education, more awareness, more understanding that that, is, that type of behavior is, is actually abnormal. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people that are chameleons that are uh, savvy and have the ability to spin a bunch of plates, meanwhile... Are dying inside, and then the family that is complicit that keeps their secrets, like a lot of people just think that that is normal, or that we can't let anybody know, and we can't don't let them see you sweat, and we're actually perpetuating the issue, the stigma, the sickness, and people are losing their lives over it. And I think that's why it's important to, to um, you know, to have these conversations. So I I when I'd ask you, what do you think the difference in the stigmas are? What what do you think? Do you think that it's, it's more okay to be an alcoholic or it's more okay to have a mental health issue? Do you, what what, laning, what way do you lane do you think as far as stigmas are concerned? Honestly, you can be addiction. either
1: one because I don't think, and it's interesting that you just asked that question. And what just popped into my mind in a, from a very loving, kind uh, place is, would anyone ever say, is it better to have high cholesterol or is it better to have high blood pressure? Which one do you think would be better to have? Which one do you think would be better perceived as, oh, I didn't bring this on myself, you know? Um, So, and I never really, until you just asked that question, I never really thought of it that way. But honestly,
0: well, because I I look at it as with drugs and alcohol, at least you have the drugs and alcohol to blame versus someone like my wife who. You know, she's been in a family program, Al-Anon, for 12 years. She's been a life coach for eight. She's got a lot of skills. And she ended up out of the blue less than two years ago, suicidal in a mental health hospital. And so it's almost like I think that sometimes it's even more difficult with the mental health side because they don't have the alcohol or drugs to blame and they can be perceived as even more so as weak. Or they don't have the ability to manage their emotions, or they can't handle it. Um, you know, both have plenty of shame and guilt and embarrassment associated with them. But I think sometimes mental health, yeah, is and even I think harder. they
1: both come with the, um, you know, a good amount of stigma and that that's associated with them. And but you're right, I think with the addiction, it's sometimes it's viewed as uh, as a choice, but to be honest, and I'm sure you can agree with this, the majority of people have co-occurring disorders going on. It's not usually just one or the other. So, that's you true. know,
0: yeah. Yeah, but a lot of them, a lot of people do have, uh, you know, they uh, particularly they don't really uh, oftentimes discover it until they get oh, yeah. rid of the substances, um, because that's a real, you know, you've learned to handle your feelings and emotions and your thoughts with the use of this substance. And then they take that away. And then all of a sudden you go, Holy smokes, uh-huh. I got all kinds of depression and, a, and anxiety and, and all kind of things going on. So you're having to like learn to feel and live life without substances yes. is, is a big challenge. What, um, so, uh, you had an interesting story about, uh, buying an <laughs> RV and, and, and driving it down to Florida. Why don't you tell, uh, tell our, our, uh, our listeners, the the aha moment you had. Oh, you geez. Left your job and yeah, I've got a, a little a bit of bravery wills.
1: and courage going on right now. So I sold my uh, house in New Hampshire because um, it was time to sell it. But I did a lot of traveling and I wasn't sure really where I wanted to end up. So instead of buying another home on a foundation, I decided to buy myself a gigantic class A motorhome, which is like the size of a Greyhound bus. And um, it's a class wow. A diesel pusher motor home. And I purchased that and I put my car on a trailer behind it. I have a little, uh, a little Mazda Miata so I can travel around on that. Yeah, you know, so much fun. Super and hip. drove from New Hampshire down to <laughs> Sarasota, Florida. And I'm here now. And I'm probably going to be here through the end of the summer. And then when it comes time to pick up anchor, I will go to my next destination, which is yet to be determined. I really kind of feel like I'm just going to go to places where I'm, I feel drawn to go. I'm self-sufficient. I've got, you know, the water, the the bathrooms on board, the showers. Um, I've got all the amenities of home. So I just need to go to different places that I feel drawn to go where I can make the biggest impact. So, um, So it was December that I went on the road and ended up in Florida. And then on April 1, I left my corporate job because I felt a nudge to just serve at a higher level and the month of April and May I have been head down inside this bus and I have been writing my heart out and curriculum and just expanding on the programs that I have in place to be able to serve leaders within organizations with uh, the knowledge that they need to help create those mentally healthy workplaces.
0: And so, uh, you know, painting a picture of what you, uh, see your business as and what you, um, you know, what that looks like, who you serve, what you're talking mm-hmm. about, what does that look like? Are you, you're going into corporations, you're individually coaching, you're doing curriculum. What t- Tell me a little bit about the picture you see uh, of what sure. your next step so is. So for the past
1: couple of years, I have been speaking, um, around the country at different conferences on the topic of mental health in the workplace, sharing my story and the tools I've acquired along the way. That has been serving me quite well. I'd love to do that, but I wanted to serve on a higher level because I really feel that leaders within organizations need to um, commit to eradicating stigma in the workplace and educating employees about what it looks like to live with a mental illness. What are the signs and symptoms? What's the proper language that we need to embrace within our organization? How do we develop peer support groups? What are the things that we have to have in place to be able to allow employees like myself to feel comfortable enough to come forward? So that being said, I have developed curriculum, which was initially meant to be um, in an in-person full-day format, which it still will be, but with COVID, I've actually taken that curriculum and changed it into an online format where organizations can work with me to be able to train their leaders and train their frontline managers and then train their employees using downloadable resources, videos that I've created as well that come along as part of the training. Um, And basically, it's the four pillars of creating and sustaining that mentally healthy workplace. So. That is one side of my, my business there. So my ideal clients are those senior level executives within organizations, primarily healthcare, but I work across all industries um, that really want to embrace that mentally healthy workplace culture. And I can take them step by step through my methodology as to how to implement and then sustain it. And then on the other side, I do a lot of work with nurses um, across the country. And I'm a mental health expert in a very large online Facebook group. There's over 600,000 nurses in this group, and I contribute to that group on a regular basis, teaching and training, doing Facebook lives, um, and um, you know, developing tools and resources for the nurses specifically to help with their mental health and well-being, especially, because of what's going on with COVID they're they're neglecting themselves tremendously and self-care is something that um, I focus on a lot with them and just giving them permission as nurses who are trained to be you know superheroes giving them permission to say hey you know what let me just throw up the white flag for a second because I need some help here I'm, I'm like drowning and I share my story all the time with them and I've really engaged quite frequent, quite a lot. And I've received messages that, you know, because of you, I went out and I sought help. Um, I had another nurse reach out to me and say how ashamed she was that (coughs) she just recently relapsed. Um, you know, I've just, I get these messages from all different angles, um, about how impactful it is when I or someone else shares their story. So, I've got a lot of work ahead of me. I've got several virtual conferences I'm part of. And, um, you know, again, working with organizations to um, allow them to work with me to implement the four pillars of creating and maintaining a healthy workplace. That's That's a mouthful.
0: Yeah, that sound. It, well, it sounds like you're doing a lot of good work, and it's almost like you, uh, you've got it figured out. But I also know as a as a new uh, entrepreneur, it can be uh, some some sometimes daunting. So I'm absolutely rooting for you, and hope you're able to 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 do what it is that you have envisioned. How do people fi- oh, uh, get find a hold of you? Everywhere.
1: How can they find you? So I am on social media. I am on Facebook. I have two pages. I have. A personal page, Kim LaMontagne, but then my maiden name is mixed in there. So it actually says Kim Bolton LaMontagne, but L-A-M-O-N-T-A-G-N-E. I have another business uh, Facebook page and it's simply named Kim LaMontagne, international speaker, trainer and author. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram and YouTube, and then I have a website which is just kimlamontagne.net, and they can find me at all of those places.
0: That's awesome. Well, hey, I have to say, I really enjoyed the conversation. I really, um, it, you know, support and. Um, uh, applaud you for the work that you're doing and just thanks for thanks for coming on and sharing uh your perspective and experience well i appreciate the I conversation really appreciate as well
1: you. and thank you so much for having me take
0: yo fam hey thanks for hanging around and eventually i'm going to share the music on this podcast why and I wanted to remind you, we have a f- private Facebook group. It's called the High Cost of Anonymity Podcast Facebook group. Connect with us. I post all kind of stuff on there. We'd love to hear from you. Holler uh, at your boy, Gia.